Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I've been around the world Had my pick of vinegar You'd think I'd be happy But I'm not Everybody knows my name But it's just a crazy game Oh, it's lonely at the top Yes, that is actually the less depressing of Randy Newman's two loneliness songs that I can think of off the top of my head. So... Welcome. This is Colin. Um, you know, this weekend, uh, my son and I rendezvoused at a house where I needed to do an errand or two. And then we walked over to the home of our friend Bill Curry, the political pundit and former gubernatorial candidate. And he came out and sat down on his lawn and we all maintained our six to 10 foot diff- distance. And we talked a little bit and he's he said, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about which kind of apocalyptic movie I'm in. Is it the kind where at the end people finally discover each other and there's a barn raising? Or is it the kind where at the end people try to kill each other? And he said, you know, what I've come to realize is it's both. And that's sort of the answer to many pressing and profound dichotomous questions. It's both. Um, every every existential question you can ask yourself seems to have two valid answers. And I'm not sure we're going to eliminate one of them over the course of today's show, although we'll uh, try. Later on in the show, you're going to meet a dance critic whose work I've really come to admire, knowing nothing, as I do, about dance or dance criticism. But Gia Corliss, because of the way that she writes about dance, has invited me in. We'll also at least entertain the possibility that the Internet is getting nicer or at least fuller of bread recipes in this time of uh, turmoil. That, that, in fact, once again, it is a barn raising. But it's also it's also a zombie bloodbath. So uh, once again, we're we're down those uh, two different roads here. But we're going to begin uh, with a guest we've had um, uh, other times before. We enjoy and admire his work. We uh, also enjoy his audio companionship when he can find time to be with us. Roger Cohen is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and author of several books. His memoir is The Girl from Human Street: Ghosts of Memory in a Jewish Family. Roger Cohen, welcome back. Thank you, Colin. So, you know, reading your work uh, over the last uh, few weeks, I find myself thinking of Robert Graves's memoir, Goodbye to All That, you know, and and just there in the title is Graves's own personal journey in uh, at the end of World War One, but also that notion that World War One changed essentially everything. It altered notions of class. It uh, altered people's relationships with God, with with nations. Um, a, a new level of distrust ar- arose, and and I think it's all kind of there in that wonderfully compact title. But you're kind of writing about that too, you know, about how our relationship 
with the reality that we have now is about to change, that we are about to say goodbye to all that? Yes, um, I think everybody, uh, certainly in New York City uh, and, and, and around the world, uh, has that feeling, Colin. I'm, I'm in a, a ghostly city right now, and uh, New York City has been quieted. Um, um, this, there's the silence, and then the silence is interrupted by sirens, and then you return to the silence, and I think everybody is... Um, in the process of reassessing their lives, reassessing their connections with loved ones, um, with nature, uh, with the frenzy of movement that we had before, with uh, what is necessary, what is not, um, just a whole new reality. And um, I hadn't thought of goodbye to all that and the Robert Graves book, and you, you flatter me by saying anything I've written had evoked that. But uh, there is an element of that. I mean, the president is promising a, a rapid return. He'd even to normality or quasi-normality. He promised that by Easter. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But I think everybody has a strong sense that this virus um, is bringing about profound changes that are not going to disappear anytime soon. Well, I think also, you know, uh, you can't really compare it to, let's say, London after the Blitz, because at a certain yeah. point, it became clear that there weren't going to be planes in the sky dropping bombs. And I think that point is much less clear here. The point at which normality resumed uh, resumes, it, it doesn't exist in one fixed place, Roger. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's no, there's no clear end to it. I mean, obviously, um, if a vaccine emerges sometime next year, uh, if the United States in its utterly chaotic response to the virus does get to a point where it can do widespread testing, and clearly this will uh, improve things. But you know, the virus could morph; it could return, and everybody has now um, been through this trauma and. Uh, as I said, is adjusting to a, a completely new uh, reality. I mean, we had been flogging the horse of global internationalized capitalism to the point of death. Everybody, many, many people were living very high stress existences where they weren't living simply existences of great poverty uh, and difficulty and precariousness. And, um, some rebalancing of resources, some rebalancing of our relationship with nature, some reconsidering of um, constant movement, um, uh, I think is inevitable. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't predict uh, where we're going to be uh, a year from now. Um, I would be astonished if we return to any semblance of, of, of the world of before. You know, uh, one of the people that I reached out to uh, a little while ago in the middle of all this was a woman I know who was at the end of World War II as a young girl from Latvia, a displaced person in Central mm. Europe. And I just sort of asked her, you know, what her state of mind was. And she wrote, I hope she won't mind me reading this off my phone. She yeah. says, she wrote, having been witness to one apocalypse, it is easy to envision the possibility of another. And yet 
the sunrise and the sunset are as beautiful as ever. Flowers are coming up in the garden. There's cooking, music, stories, and the faces of people I love, even though I may not touch them. So I reside somewhere between the two, depending on the day. And you've been writing a lot about the past, how, uh, Roger, the every day the president seems to light a, a fuse that sizzles and fizzles its way back to our past. Uh, and and I think, once again, I think she's right, that you sort of get stuck between two things, the way in which the past may embolden us and the way the past makes us also vulnerable because we've seen things that can happen. Maybe you can say a little bit more about how you're thinking about the past. Well, I've been thinking about the past a lot. I think everybody feels more in touch with their forebears um, who went through things like the the Great Depression or, or World War II. Um, and, uh, you know, we read about the ends of eras and the collapse of empires in history books. And we tend to forget that there were people who were alive during those times. They lived through the ends of eras and, and the collapses of empires and um, the great changes, the great historical changes that um, brought us to the present day. And I think, you know, we have a sense right now of an era ending. And I personally, and I wrote about this in my last column, my, my sister had been sending me, you know, people are going through things, doing things they wouldn't otherwise have done. My sister has been going through these old slides of, my dad's, my late father's, that she found last year in uh, in a house in Wales that got sold, and um, and they're, they're photos of our of our childhood, and that got me thinking. My dad was a physician. I started thinking about how much I would have liked to ask him about the current situation, and I think everybody is 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 feeling is feeling uh, this this kind of connection. Look, the sun is it's a beautiful day here in mm-hmm. New York. Um, you hear the birds more than you did before. There's food in the stores. Um, we can move around in a limited radius. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's plenty, there's enough to live on. Uh, there's no question that um, um, living through World War II or something like that was, was a lot worse. But I think, and, and I lived through the the war in Bosnia, which I covered, and I know what it's like to be in a city that you can't get out of, that's surrounded by a dirt trench, that's being bombarded day after day with shells landing on pregnant women and seeing people blown up in the streets. And, and okay, you know, you steal yourself, you, you hunker down, you, you're there, you've got a job to do, you do the job you have to do, and you, you focus on that. Um, as I wrote at the end of my last column, um, it's falling apart. Um, you deal with it. Um, no way out but through. And, uh, okay, I've had that experience, and I think it's, it's some kind of psychological reserve inside me that I've worked in war zones, that I've traveled wide in the world. I've seen, you know, great poverty, great hardship. I think, uh, I hope I'm not being unfair, but I think maybe for the generation under 30, maybe, or under 35. Um, you know, it's been a f- fairly uh, cosseted um, existence, at least for, for some people. And I think there's, an immen- there's a tremendous shock right now, a tremendous shock. And of course, in any situation like this, the worst possible thing is panic. 
and uh, people mustn't panic because that's that's very dangerous and it's even dangerous to to one's health you know i think from what i understand you know calmness insofar as one can arrive at it um keeps one's resistance strong and panic tends to spread through the body um uh, uh makes it makes it makes your body more conducive to the virus so calmness is important if one can achieve it <laughs> right although that is sort of the don't think about an elephant uh, paradox because if yeah. you know that anxiety makes you more vulnerable to the virus that can become its own form of anxiety that you have anxiety <laughs> and then there's sort of no yeah. way out uh, no there is no point. way out i mean you hear a siren there's no way out. You hear choppers overhead in the middle of the night. You're awake, insomnia. Uh, you see a discarded latex glove or a discarded mask. It looks post-apocalyptical on the streets. Uh, you can't. You see. Uh, you see um, triage tents outside Mount Sinai Hospital or mobile morgues. I mean, we're human. You can't stop yourself from letting your imagination, from having your imagination, go to dark places. Um, this this is life, and I you know I'm very 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 worried about the state of the world. I mean, this is a pandemic, pandemic, pan right, pan. But there is no pan world reaction. Uh, there is no statement from the United Nations Security Council. There's nothing, and two great powers left on Earth right now, China and the United States, are at loggerheads over responsibility and blaming each other. And we have, in my view. Um, catastrophic leadership uh, here in the United States under President Trump. Uh, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners will disagree, but um, I, you know, I really think that, you know, this pandemic has encountered, I mean, if you would dream up a nightmare scenario, you would have something of this gravity encountering a world this splintered and with such um, poor leadership in the most powerful country on earth. That is very, very worrying. And of course, the pandemic also uh, allows for extraordinary measures. Okay, extraordinary measures, but abuse of extraordinary measures also becomes very easy when you're clamping down, when you're putting up barriers, when you're uh, dismissing the you know, usual norms of democratic life. Uh, anybody of autocratic uh, inclination, uh, in essence, has a potential field day. Right. And, you know, as my friend from Latvia also said in her message, you know, it wasn't as though everything was right with the world before this started. We weren't living in some <laughs> panglossian pan utopia. No, no, no. And, yeah. and as, as a result, uh, this is just kind of hammered down on a lot of things that were worrisome or, or troubling to begin with, ranging from in a, an inadequate American healthcare system, which has yeah. been obviously exposed about as much as it could be by a pandemic, right. to some very deep inequalities. It's been very troubling to me, the people who can't avoid exposure because they yeah. have to take a bus, they have to go to a job, uh, those inequalities. And then to top it all off, yes, we have this very strange man who runs the country last night and you know he does this thing that's almost like what psychotherapists call primary process where a patient no, just says everything that comes into his or her mind without filtering yeah. it at all so last night he's just started musing publicly about the fact that 182 countries 
have uh, infections. And then he said, imagine that there could be 182 countries. And I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I don't expect the president of the United States to know exactly how many countries there are, but I do <laughs> expect him not to be surprised at how many countries there are. <laughs> well, well, Colin, there are a lot of things that you'd expect not to happen, expect uh, the president not to be um, surprised by. But um, yeah, I mean, he's vaunting the wonders of this uh, malaria drug, you know, hydroxychloroquine, and uh, and it's untested. I mean, it, it is, you know, by any standard, just grossly, you know, irresponsible. And there's not a day now that it's become the COVID-19 reality TV show starring Donald Trump. I mean, it's his dream. He's on he's on TV. Uh, every day, and he's meandering uh, one minute, uh, you know, we've got to get our businesses going again, the next, um, he's putting out a number for the number of dead, and you know, clearly putting out a relatively high number, and he wants to try to better it. Um, there is no, there is zero, there is zero coherence to the response, and of course, the Chinese cover-up of the initial six weeks from early December in Wuhan was then compounded by the six-week to eight-week um, Trump administration confabulation, uh, strongly reinforced by, by Fox News, um, essentially portraying um, the virus as a hoax, a hoax, something invented by the left or, you know, some... And uh, so a lot of time was lost, a lot of time that could have been used to develop effective tests. My son-in-law works at Grady Hospital in Atlanta. He's a physician and he's on the front line. He, he didn't even have tests to test himself, let alone test patients. And, you know, that's, 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 what, we're, that's what we're living with. Um, it's, uh, it's very worrying. I, I do think, I was watching last night uh, the way he kind of pounded away at these the idea of these malarial drugs the kind yeah. of repeated anti-malarial you begin drugs. to wonder if a friend or a member of his family has you know cornered the market in well follow the money when this is over anyway right, i think exactly. that's yeah, a mandatory yeah. for journalists and i just if anybody's listening i mean uh, the these drugs are being tried within the Yale new haven health system but on a very limited closely controlled basis that they're not antiviral drugs they're not drugs that anybody should be taking prophylactically. They also yeah. have a pretty high cardiotoxicity. So uh, if, you're, if a doctor isn't carefully monitoring the possible negative impact on your heart, it would be reckless to be using them. They have, if they're going to work at all, they have a very, very limited, very specific application having to do with reducing the inflammation in the lungs. And nobody should imagine anyway that you can just stay home and gulp these things down and be fine. That would be a very dangerous thing to do. And the most visible person in America is is leaving people with that very reckless uh, impression. You know, Roger, another thing that I noticed about that 182 things, almost every time President Trump speaks, he mentions how many other countries have it. That's yeah. a point of some interest to him. And I think it's because he wants to emphasize that it's a worldwide pandemic, not because he wants to bring us all together, but but he, because he's now uncomfortable with the fact that the United States has by far the largest number, number even without tests, the yeah. largest number of infections, more than twice the number of the next country on the list. There's a way in which 
the one way that he's interested in we're all in this together is yeah. because he doesn't want to be the head of state of the uh, of the biggest bloodbath country. Yeah, um, he, um, you know, the situation in the United States is um, is appalling right now, and um, you know, there's this. You know, he puts the president puts his son-in-law in charge of the um, attempt to stem the spread of, of the coronavirus. And you know, what has Jared Kushner ever accomplished? Uh, Middle East peace plan that sure worked out well. And uh, yeah, it's all, it's all over the place, but I think he's, yes, he's trying to, he's, you know, the attempt by secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, the worst secretary of state we've had in a very long time to, um, you know, even the G7 couldn't agree on anything because he insisted on calling it the Wuhan virus. Well, that's just petty schoolyard stuff, and it has no place, um, and, you know, at that level of exchange. So, um, so yeah, he wants to try and say, well, everybody's in this. Everybody's in this. Sure, everybody is in this, but he is not interested, really, as as Mike Pompeo's performance indicates. Where is the Secretary of State, by the way? Where is the U.S. Secretary of State at the time of a global crisis? I mean, where is he? Uh, nowhere, because, look, Trump's a lucky guy. He got through three and a half years, pretty much, with no really major crisis, nearly took us into a war in Iran. Remember that? That was in January. Already <laughs> seems eons ago. Um, he, he's, he's a lucky guy, but then his luck ran out. I mean, his luck ran out with this. And we're seeing this devastating combination of, in my view, um, extreme incompetence and a kind of eerie, obscene at times, inhumanity, where the president tweets on a day when several hundred Americans have died about his ratings and says that his ratings are fantastic, that this daily reality COVID-19 show uh, has remarkable ratings comparable uh, to um, a prime time uh, series of some kind. And, uh, and the thing is, he spreads such terror among his aides who are all feel they have a gun to the backs of their head if they say anything out of line, but there's nobody there who might say that, Mr. President, I think this is a little bit off key, maybe just a touch off key, you know, to be boasting about your ratings when people are dying. Should we hold off that for a little? There's nobody there who's doing that. They're all just bowing and scraping. So um, again, I think, I think, look, it's seven months to the election and, um, this, you know, in the best scenario, we've got two more months of this at a pretty bad level. Um, yeah, this is a very critical seven months, and I think we've already seen it. I mean, the president wants to be on TV every single day, and um, you know, his temp he doesn't want he doesn't want mail-in voting. Pretty clear why. Um, uh, you know, he's got lockdowns in the heart of the country and the cities where democratic votes are concentrated in potential swing states. I, th I see, maybe I'm too alarmist, but I just see all sorts of ways in which this situation could be used um, 
to nefarious ends. <laughs> you are you are not the only one thinking that way, alas. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I think for most of us, the notion of the movie The Truman Show, which was about a reality staged exclusively for the benefit of one person, is a terrifying notion. I think that's also exactly the notion right. that Donald Trump embraces with great enthusiasm. We've been talking to Roger Cohen, uh, op-ed columnist for The New York Times, author of several books, including The Girl from Human Street, Ghosts of, Mem of Memory in a Jewish Family. Roger, once again, thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you. Hang in there, man. Thank you. All right. You too. You too. All right. We will take a break. Uh, I am very excited about our next guest. I've become kind of a fanboy uh, of her dance writing. And so what's a dance critic doing on our show at a time like this? It's going to make total sense when we explain it to you. All right. I see no point in hiding this. I am a Gia Corliss fanboy. Uh, and I became one last year when she started writing things about, for example, how River, how uh, Joaquin Phoenix moved uh, in the movie The Joker or how dance and movement were used in the movie Little Women. I'm kind of a moron about actual dance criticism, but now anything with her byline I now read. And I think she's doing for dance and dance criticism what her colleague Vanessa Friedman and The Washington Post's uh, Robin Given do for fashion, which is incorporated into all of the other realities and arts that we enjoy. And in that vein, she wrote a really fascinating piece uh, about how we use our bodies to navigate space during a pandemic. I think this is especially important in urban areas. So Gia Corliss, with a, after a long introduction, welcome to our show. Thank you. So tell us more about this. You as a dancer are uh, attuned to the choreography of everyday life. Tell us a little bit about what that would mean. Well, I think that living in New York, you know, we're always navigating around crowds. Um, some, some people, some, you know, tourists who, who aren't used to, to walking at the speed that we do or just being in the subway and trying to make your train. You're just always kind of choreographing your own path. And I think now... I've noticed that we have to look out for others as well, like we're all in this together. Um, so I was kind of inspired to write this past essay because I'm a runner and I like to walk outside and I think, feel like it's a real gift that we have right now that we're allowed to go outside. But um, I've noticed that people aren't really adhering to the six-foot rule and, and things like that. So that's, that was my idea. Right. Um, and I think yeah. every environment, too, has its own rules. Uh, and yeah. if you're a stranger to that environment, you might not know the rules. I actually just by chance was in Japan in 2009 during the swine flu um, uh, epidemic or scare, depending on uh, where right. you were living and how you experienced it. But the Japanese have very, very specific rules. There's no such thing as six feet of distance in most places in Japan. But they, they understand how to create a kind of zone physically around themselves. And they're constantly <laughs> looking at yeah. foreigners and thinking these people have no idea. And I would imagine New York is similar, that people do understand which which side of the subway steer you walk up on or something like that. <laughs> right. They, sometimes they don't, though. <laughs> or, or because there's so many cultures here, which is the great thing about New York City. It's, it's so many different kinds of people with different backgrounds and upbringing, and it's, you never know what you're going to get. So you have to be aware, I think. Um, you kind of have to improv on the yeah. spot, too. 
Yes. So uh, tell me a, a little bit more about that. So as a runner, yeah, you're mm-hmm. running through so you're running through mm-hmm. Central Park and there may be 15 people in your immediate path, all of whom have a slightly different understanding of what kind of situation this is. So well, how does that affect you? I think it's different where I run. I'm, I don't live anywhere near Central Park. I'm in Brooklyn and I run across the Williamsburg Bridge every day. Mm. So it takes me through a few neighborhoods. I live in Bushwick. And um, so it's very different. Like, I'm on the sidewalk. I'm running on the street now because I'm so afraid of the sidewalk. Um, then you get to the bridge. It's just, like, different. It's, it's a very different way of moving through life right now. You can't, be, you can't zone out. You can't have the kind of run you had a month ago. You have to be really aware of, of your surroundings and, and who, you're, who you're sharing the street with. It's, it can be kind of scary, right? Um, it's also sweet when you see people swerve around you as well. So it's, it, when you have those kind of meetings with people, it is like a duet in a way. It is like a dance, or that's how I see it. But around every corner is someone who's not really paying attention so. Right. And and I, I think also people mm-hmm. have different abilities to even perceive the notions of personal space or right. balance or, you know, as somebody who's physical, you're very physically aware. But but it might even be that people need a little bit of a, a, a lesson in thinking about how not to be almost bumping into people around right. them. I don't know if that's possible to achieve, though. I don't either. I think that there are two kinds of people. I think there are people who really have don't have spatial awareness, and maybe, you know, they have coordination problems too, and I think that exists. And then I think there are people who are kind of entitled and aren't even paying attention. So that's kind of the, the fine line. <laughs> it's hard to navigate those two types of people. But that's just my observation from, from running and walking these past few weeks. I don't right. know. Do you, do you agree? It's, I don't mean to generalize, but... Yes, I, I think I actually... You know, I, I used to describe myself as the kind of person who needs about a quarter of an acre of personal space. You know, I don't like people getting too close to me. But I think that kind of person who thinks he or she needs a lot of personal distance can be exactly the kind of person who's oblivious mm-hmm. to, to his or her intrusion on other people's space. Right. Yeah. The, the, the less you are physically aware of where you are in space, right. the more likely you are to make mistakes about space, obviously. Right. Well, probably people should should not walk with cell phones anymore. Yes. Honestly, like that was a problem before, but now it's even worse, right? Right. Oh, I mean, I've seen, so I live in a different kind of place these days. Yeah. And one of the things that I've, uh, I do uh, several times a week uh, because I have kind of a rambunctious dog is I drive quite a distance to where I can be alone in the woods with the oh, dog. Wow. And, and on the way to that, I see all kinds of things. And I'm obviously very, very careful these days because there are more people out walking. Being out walking is one of the things that you mm-hmm. can do. But mm-hmm. I often find that they've been very careless. That I saw some two people bicycling in the road yesterday. One of them was talking on her phone while riding her bicycle. You know, I mean, I'm just thinking, well, that's the definition of not being physically present, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, I saw so many things today when I was running. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I think some days it's getting better. And then no. Right. One of the things yeah. you do write about is balance. Yeah. Uh, and just to talk a little bit about that, because I've, I've been having some thoughts about it as well. Um, well, I think that people have to be more aware of their bodies in order to be better out in, out, out in the world. 
um, walking, running, biking, anything. And so I think that almost like a physical practice, I I wish that people did more um, exercise that was even quieter that could that could give them balance. So it's not like just a hit class or or like a um, a spinning class, but something that really works on resistance and your body weight. Um, I think those are really important. Anything, any balancing act that you can even do on your own, like when you're brushing your teeth, if you stand on one foot, how hard or easy is that? Can you close your eyes? All of those things will help you become more aware of your body when you're just doing anything. And it also helps you, I think, react in the moment so that you you could slip and fall, but you won't because all of those little tiny muscles are going to work and right you. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Yeah. Oh, talking to dance critic Gio Corliss from the New York Times. You know, another thing I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is it's sort of the opposite of what you're really experiencing right now, which is that dance is so much about the joy of the body, taking joy in the movement of the body, what the body can do, how the body can marry itself to music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think, you know, cinema has taught us to really expect these kind of, you know, slumdog millionaire moments of just people erupting in dance, or there's a scene in 500 Days of Summer where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is walking through an urban environment, and somebody's suddenly everybody's dancing right. with him and throwing props to him and uh, stuff like that. Ferris Bueller has that great twist and shout scene where the whole city starts mm-hmm. dancing along with him. And, and there is, I, I, now I think, because we're so mostly afraid of and protective of, I guess we're afraid for and protective of our bodies, that we're thinking about them in kind of the opposite way, right? That my body is something that can get me in trouble. Your body is something that mm-hmm. can cause trouble for my body. And mm-hmm. there's a way in which we're losing bodily joy. Yes, because it's it's tense when you go outside, right? Or when you go into a shop um, to buy food. It's, yes. You're, you're suddenly, like, a little bit afraid. I, I have been at times. Um, so, well, yeah. So what, should, what, are you, wait, what is your question? Well, well, I guess my question is, sort of, actually, what I'm doing is subtly trying to lead us towards uh-huh. ways in which we can kind of reconnect with that. One of them... Uh, I think you've been writing about a bit is that, you know, there are these kind of online opportunities either right. to take a dance class or I discovered this British thing called club mob where they, they do kind of a flash mob online. And then at the end they teach the viewers how to do those particular dance steps. Right. There's a way in which we can maybe be safe and at home and maybe oh, yeah. a little back more happy about our bodies. Definitely. Definitely. It's true. It's like there's two sides of how you can express your body right now. And it's that one when you're outside, it's more protective, and then inside you can be free. Um, and there are so many online classes and online dance opportunities. Like I think Debbie Allen has a class on on Wednesdays. Ryan Heffington has a, <laughs> has a fun class. Um, and I mean, even just to take like Tyler Peck's ballet bar, she teaches every day at one o'clock. She there are advanced and and you know more beginner steps that she introduces, and anyone can do it, and no one's judging you or watching you. It's kind of a perfect opportunity to explore kind of dance that you've always wanted to do, but we're too afraid to go to a, a regular class for. And it's, there are all kinds of classes. 
I love the idea of, oh, my Debbie Allen class is on mm-hmm. Wednesday. I saw her actually in the original Ain't Misbehaving. Um, so <laughs> um, so did, I wanted to bring up and maybe even plant the the seed. I'm so uh, arrogant that I feel I can plant the seed of a future Geocoreless uh, article. <laughs> And the, the the next extension of that is absent any computer instruction or anything like that, just kind of house dancing. You know, there are great two great solo house dancing scenes in cinema. One of them is Risky Business, where Tom right. Cruise dances famously in his underpants. Uh, and the other one is Hugh Grant in Love Actually, uh, mm-hmm. whereas the prime minister, he celebrates by uh, mm-hmm. gyrating to the Pointer Sisters. And those could be kind of inspiring, I think, provided you have any room at all in whatever mm-hmm. apartment or dwelling you're living. And mm-hmm. it seems to me house dancing is another way to just sort of get back in love with kinesthetics and, and, and your body. Right. Well, just play music and dance. That's all it is. You don't have to, you don't need a step, you know, it's just play the music that you love. Right. And be happy. And be happy. Right. Or be sad. Uh, have a sad dance. <laughs> dance isn't just about joy. You know, it's not pretty. You don't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be. It can be ugly. Right. That's a, that's a good idea. Be ugly, be ugly. Express be your sad. sadness uh, physically, yeah. too. It's All right. Cathartic. Well, uh, Gia Corliss, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I oh, hope this you. won't be the last time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we will take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to hear an argument that the Internet is becoming a nicer place. Although I think, as I said at the beginning of the show, all dichotomies are both true. And in every dichotomous situation, I think the Internet is getting nicer and worser. And we're back. This is Colin. I've got some thank yous to say, starting with Kat Pastor, the person who just counted me right back in. She's in the studios making everything sound great and keeping us organized. Uh, senior producer Betsy Kaplan is the person who produced this show, conceived it, and uh, lined up the guests. Behind them uh, is an army uh, of, of people ranging from our bosses to Katie Tulaski and Tim Rasmussen uh, to our tech people like Joe Koss and TJ Coppola uh, and, of course, Gina Amatruda, who's kind of the center of all things. Uh, so thanks to all of you. Um, tomorrow, what we're going to do, we're going to rerun a conversation we had with the author Ocean Vuong, uh, partly because he has a lot to say in the piece. Uh, he's both a poet and a novelist. Uh, he um, has a lot to say in the in, in the piece that we did with him about prejudice that was directed uh, at him as a young Vietnamese immigrant. Uh, and of course, there's more of that going on uh, right now. So we have all kinds of other uh, exciting things, including we probably are going to do a show this week about sex in the time of coronavirus. So get ready for that. Uh, joining us now, uh, and it's a nice bridge actually from uh, Gia uh, and the idea of dancing in your house, because we're going to mention it again in this conversation, is Tanya Basu, a senior reporter for MIT Technology Review. She covers the intersection of technology and humans, uh, and she recently co-authored a piece with Karen Howe for uh, MIT Technology Review called Why Does It Suddenly Feel Like 1999 on the Internet? Uh, I guess because we're going to party like it's 1999. Tanya, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, so one of the prime, well, actually, since we just talked to a dance critic, let's go right to DJ Nice. Uh, tell us about these dance parties. Uh, DJ D. Nice has 
basically a virtual dance party very frequently and it's on Instagram stories. He invites everyone. I mean, it's public. You can join um, and just sign on and basically dance to his music. And if anything, it's sort of an indicator of how uh, social media has been sort of parlayed into this more welcome, more opening sort of space after this whole coronavirus uh, crisis. Right. And so this club sometimes gets as big as 150,000 virtual participants. Uh, Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Mark Zuckerberg uh, have been known to be drawn like moths to its flame. I can't really picture Mark Zuckerberg dancing. I don't want to picture Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> I can't dancing. Either. But it does happen. So I guess the question is, you know, one of the things that you looked at, you know, what are people doing? Well, they are exchanging bread recipes, which is good. Uh, and they are using, I mean, one of the things that the internet and social media and I think Facebook in particular uh, are all really good at is connecting people and people finding one another. Um, uh, often this seems to devolve pretty quickly into finding people to have quarrels with, but you're, you're seeing an opposite thing. Say more about that. Well, I think the initial thing that you touched on about social media, trying to connect people, that's the promise of social media. But like you also mentioned, that's not necessarily what's happened. Um, because people are connecting on this platform and, you know, finding friends, finding family, that's great, but they're also finding people they disagree with or, Uh, people that maybe don't agree with them in terms of very volatile subjects. And then that irks them into the point of being trolls or they're just trolls because they're terrible people. Um, So the idea of social media as a connector is good in sort of idealism. It's idealistically a good goal. But I think now with the crisis, we're sort of seeing a lot of people connect on social media um, for reasons that might go beyond, you know, attacking someone who might not agree with you or, you know, belittling a person who you might not think looks right or whatever. Um, There's a sense of those things feel sort of cheap or feel like a waste of time when there's literally people dying. And there's a sense of maybe when we are trying to find joy and escape through social media or through the internet overall, that that time, you know, attacking someone might be better spent actually uplifting a community member or trying to create community in a way that will help, you know, ease the suffering in some way. Right. I mean, uh, you know, way back in those 90s, uh, Internet theorists like Clay Shirky were writing that one of the things that Facebook was really good at was helping you find other people to make common cause with, particularly, let's say that you have a rare cancer. You know, you can find the other people who have that rare cancer. You can get together with them. You can exchange vital kinds of information and very special kinds of comfort with them. And and it's always been really good at organizing small, special increments interest groups. I guess the question is, or maybe what you're seeing right now, is that it can even go beyond that. Like everybody kind of likes bread. So, <laughs> so I mean, is that happening? Are we sort of getting out of our little uh, niche groups that we have and, and finding one another in more generalized ways? I think it's yes, but also, I mean, consider that this is a pandemic that's of global proportions. This is something that universally affects every single person on this planet and has basically created a common, it's not something that's, you know, 
geographically restrained in any way or affects a certain group in a different way than another. It's a very universal, uh, for better or worse, democratizing sort of thing that's happening right now. Anyone around the world is feeling the emotional, the physical, the economic effects of this. And so we've never really had this during the age of even social media, which was supposed to be, again, a democratizing force, um, where everyone kind of is going through the situation at the same time. And I think, yes, you know, there is community in being able to bake bread or, you know, these little niche groups like the DJing um, example that we start the piece off with. But I think what you're seeing also is this underlying sense of we'll get th through this together that, you know, here are some tips that I've used to homeschool my child. Maybe that'll help you. Or, you know, these are beautiful pictures of nature that I've come across when I went hiking. Maybe that'll help you. Um, another thing to consider is the fact that, you know, we're going through a pandemic now that, you know, has really been able to use social media and the internet for education purposes in a way that no other previous pandemic had ever done or, you know, major emergency crisis. I mean, being able to say, hey, here are mask designs that you can create at home or, you know, make sure you check on your elderly relatives, but, you know, make sure that they're also educated about what to do. There's this sort of larger uh, benevolence going on. And I'm not necessarily saying that this is, uh, you know, you go on the internet and it's, you know, hunky-dory and it's, you know, fun times there. No, the internet is still, you know, there, there are bad corners of the internet, but there is this uh, sort of sensibility that there's a greater uh, issue that we're all dealing with at the same time. And we're all, you know, united in some way in trying to figure it out or combat it and get back to normal. So reading your piece, I developed my own theory about this, which I will now float by. Oh, you. Please share. you can either blow it out of the air or you can embrace <laughs> it. Um, and that is that you know, one of the things that we noticed over really, you know, two and a half decades was that people would often reserve the worst part of themselves for their Internet speech. So in other words, a person who would be very uncomfortable uh, telling you to blow it out your old wazoo face to face or as part of any kind of normal set of social interactions would turn into that Mr. Hyde person on the Internet. This would be the space where that person could have flames coming out of his or her uh, mouth and, and, and be uh, especially unpleasant in a way that that person would typically not act like in real life. And, and that right now what's happened is the opportunity to be the nice person, the Dr. Jekyll version of yourself in real life isn't so available anymore. So people have also moved their nice selves over to the internet. You're meeting the other half. You've, you've known, you've seen Mr. Hyde for quite a long time. Now you're meeting by the millions, the Dr. Jekyll side of people that ordinarily was used in face-to-face, person-to-person, work time, social time, interaction. Actions. That's my theory. I think that's a good theory. And I think that what your theory also underlies is this idea of a feedback loop. You know, there's more nice things going on. More nice people will also sign on and, you know, share nice things because they're seeing others share nice things. And it's sort of like something that snowballs. So I think that your theory definitely has some uh, footing for sure.
And I think the other thing is people all the time in uh, IRL, as we would say, are, are doing wonderful things. And so I'll give you an example. So a guy named Steve Metcalf, who's on our show a lot, is a fabulous, fabulous piano player. And I've known him very well for many decades. And we're often sitting around his living room and he'll play something and I'll sing it with him and whatever. Well, there just aren't opportunities for that kind of stuff these days. And what he has taken to doing, like a lot of people who play musical instruments, is having somebody appoint or setting up a, a, a camera playing one song a day. And it could be a Beatles song or it could be uh, Fred Astaire's uh, Cheek to Cheek oh, uh, and, and he just plays it and people go nuts people go crazy he gets insane amounts uh, of traffic for this and I think it's just people are saying okay here's what I can do you know I, I can't in fact um, I am unable to invent a vaccine right now but I can play a piano uh, song for you and here it is and I think there's an incredible amount of gratitude for that yeah, I think that's something you're touching on also is the sense of helplessness that a lot of people feel. You know, if I'm not an essential worker, but I'm stuck at home, what can I do to help, you know, make things a little bit brighter? And one way to create that community is through social media. For example, your friend who is, you know, organizing these piano planes, like he has this gift, this skill that he knows can bring joy to other people. And the, you know, kind of the excitement, the initial, you know, promise of social media, like we were saying in our first um, sort of discussion of this, was this sense of community and being able to help others across this divide. So you see a lot of people, you know, doing things that they're good at, whether it's sharing crafts or, you know, kids sharing art. They're just trying to have some sense of control over the situation and be able to feel like, hey, I'm, you know, doing something here to make yes. sure that this community is positively affected. We have to stop there, but thank you so much, Tanya Basu, senior reporter for MIT Technology Review. She covers the intersection of technology and humans. And we humans have to say goodbye. Thank you very much for listening today. Uh, Ocean Vong will be on tomorrow. And yes, we do have sex in the time of coronavirus coming up later this week. Who knows what else? Oh, children's books, a whole show about children's literature. <laughs>